Good evening, welcome to another edition. Uh, before I get started with my stories, uh, some may be asking what made me decide to start a podcast when it seems like we're flooded with anyone who can and will start a podcast. So what made me start a podcast was the fact that it started I guess you could say it started when I started hanging around radio. Matter of fact, my radio days go back to when I was in a class at Hutchinson Community College called Radio Lab, and we got to be on-air DJs, and we basically broadcasted to the dorms, so people in the dorms could hear our radio broadcast, so I was basically a DJ in the studio. Fast forward. Around about 2009, 2010, KGSO popped up on the scene. And I want to work in radio. So I got my start working in radio as a board operator. Basically, I was the one pushing the buttons, or as you could say, facilitating live stream over the air uh, for high school football games. So I was basically behind the scenes. Uh, the guy that hired me in at the time was a guy, I don't know where he's at now, but he's still on my Facebook feed. I don't know if he's still on Facebook or not, but his name is Joel Navarro. And Joel was the one that actually let me, being a board operator, would open up my microphone and actually get on the air and like but there was a broadcast of I think it was Wichita I think it was Wichita Wranglers at the time I think it was broadcasting their games and uh, Randy Lake pops up so he said well go ahead and make the announcement that you're going to send it back to regularly scheduled programming so Kind of got a brief indoctrination on talking on air. Then there's Chris Allison, who is now doing ESPN radio in Charlotte, North Carolina. I used to get up in the mornings and go sit in the studio with him. Every now and then he would let me say a few words. Not many, but a few. But I'd watch him and see how relentless he was in his work ethic. So... That put a bug in me to want to try some kind of way to get on radio. Well, now we fast forward a little bit more to the current time. There's a guy who, who's back in town. His name is Andy Hoosier. Some of y'all probably know him as the voice of reason on KQAM and has his own thing going. But he, before he left town, me and him would do Friday night quick scores. And that was a blast because I was doing it every other week because he had somebody else doing it so as well too. So the weeks I was in there, you know, it was a blast to be able to, you know, break down high school games, take calls from sideline reporters that were at games. And, you know, the more I did it, the more I'm like, I want to be on the show. So now we fast forward even more. 
I mean, there were people like Scott Styles who has been on radio and he has his own thing called Sports Files with Styles, but you know, just being able to watch him do his thing and then uh my partner Rick Thomas had a show called Running the Table and then that's when I think you could say I really started to get known because I could actually come in to the studio and do a whole two hour show with him. Which is why it's more fitting that even on my fees you will when the time comes around, one of my guests is going to be Rick Thomas. Because he really let me get my foot in the door and actually be on the air doing live radio broadcast doing a radio show. So that's what led me to want to do my own podcast and the reason I said my podcast would be different because yes, I may talk about everyday sports, but at the same time, I'm going to bring some light onto black history sports, whether it be Negro League baseball, who broke the color barrier, how many players followed suit after the color barrier was broken in baseball, talking about HBCUs, which is historically black college and universities, and talk about what's going on in sports in the HBCU community as well. So that's why I want to bring a different perspective to sports, not to push any other sports aside, because as you can see, I have been talking about what's going on in Major League Baseball, uh, what's been going on in, in the NFL, uh, college football landscape. But I definitely want to shed light on, you know, Negro history in sports as well, too, and the contributions that they have made. And I just kind of want to throw this out while I'm talking about that. Do you think, even though I know no one has talked about this, but do you think in today's time that there could be a resurgence of a Negro League? Just something to think about. When I come back, I will have some history on Negro League baseball, not so much the league itself, but the history of African-Americans in Major League Baseball. I'll be back in a few minutes. I'm back, and we are going to be doing this segment here called uh, Remembering Jackie's First Black Major League Baseball Teammate. The Negro League Museum is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the start of the Negro League, and there's been a series of articles on some of the league's legends. This one is about Dan Bankhead, who was the first black pitcher to play in the big leagues and the second black player to join Jackie Robinson with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. Jackie Robinson made baseball history on April 15, 1947, 
when he became the first African-American to break the color barrier in the major leagues. But Robinson had a black teammate later that year. Many believe Roy Campanella or Don Newcomb were on the roster later that season, but that was not the case. The next African-American to play for the Dodgers was a right-hander named Dan Bankhead, the first African-American pitcher to play Major League Baseball, ahead of legendary Satchel Page, who didn't enter the big leagues until 1948 with the Indians. Page was considered the best pitcher in Negro League history, but the jury was still out on how old Page was. Many teams believe Page was past his prime and already in his 40s. General Manager Branch Rickey had his eyes on the young bankhead who was in his mid-20s. The Dodgers thought he had electric stuff, dominating stuff when he pitched for the Birmingham Black Barons and the Memphis Red Sox of the Negro Leagues. He was more than just a pitcher. This guy could swing a bat. According to Bob Kendrick, president of the Negro League Baseball Museum, Bankhead was a red-hot hitter with a 385 batting average when he signed with the Dodgers. That was the kind of athlete Bankhead was. He even stole bases, Kendrick said. However, Bankhead didn't have the impact on the field that Robinson had. Bankhead played parts of three seasons with Brooklyn without much success in 1947, 50, and 51. While Robinson had a career to remember with his skills on the diamond, Bankhead could never harness his pitching. Bankhead was 9-5 with a 6.52 ER in his big league. After his first year in the big leagues, Bankhead spent the next two years in the minors where he won a combined 44 games but walked 316 batters in 487 innings. Bankhead was still given a chance to return to the major leagues, but again, it came without much success. Years after Bankhead retired, Kendrick and the late Buck O'Neill met up with Bankhead's son, who gave them an explanation about why his father was not successful when he broke the color line for black pitchers. Bankhead, who was from Alabama, was scared of what the ramifications would be if he hit a white batter, Kendrick said. He never got comfortable pitching to white guys. You read about his stuff. He had the kind of fastball that ran in on right-handed hitters. His stuff was electric. I think the first batter that he threw to, he hit him in the elbow. Bankhead stayed with the Dodgers organization through the 1952 season before playing for a year in the Class C Provincial League. From 1955 to 66, he played eight seasons with various teams in Mexico before retiring. In 1960, his only year in the Mexican League, for which detailed statistics are available, he was 5-2 with a 4.50 ERA in 16 games for Paricos de Pueblo. Bankhead passed away in 1976 of lung cancer. So there you have some Negro history in Major League Baseball. I'll be back with more.
In this segment, I want to talk about ballparks that live on former Negro League ballparks. One casualty of the 2020 COVID-19 pandemic has been a baseball-wide celebration of the 100th anniversary of the formation of the Negro National League. There are six existing ballparks that formerly hosted Negro League's Major League action, and here they are. It was on February 13, 1920, when Rube Foster convened a meeting of eight independent black baseball team owners at the Peso YMCA in Kansas City, leading to the formation of the Negro National League and paving the way for the creation of other Negro Leagues, both on major league level and a minor league level. The anniversary was set to be celebrated in Major League Baseball on June 27, with all 30 teams slated to wear commemorative patches. But with the 2020, base, 2020 season shut down, so will the MLB celebration. Though the Negro League's Baseball Museum in Kansas City continues to mark the occasion and is likely to do so into 2021. If the history of the ballparks of the Negro Leagues, six surviving facilities are worth seeking out, two are in the midst of renovation efforts, one is likely to be demolished in coming years, and three still used for baseball. So here is the list. Rick Woodfield, Birmingham, Alabama. Still going strong at 110 years old, Rick Woodfield still hosts baseball as well as the annual Rick Wood Classic hosted by the Southern League's Birmingham Barons. In 1920, the Birmingham Black Barons became a charter member of the 18 Negro Southern League and ascended to the Negro American League in 1937. During the 1920s, Birmingham would see future Hall of Famers Leroy Satchel Page George Mule Suttles and Bill Foster suit up for the Black Barons. During the 1940s, the Black Barons would win three 1940, 1945, 1948 league pennants and produce more future stars of the game, including Major League Baseball Hall of Famer Willie Mays and Lorenzo Piper Davis. League Park, Cleveland, Ohio. Baseball was first played at the site of League Park in 1891 when a wooden ballpark opened for the Cleveland Spiders. The original League Park to occupy the site lasted through the 1909 season when it made way for a new structure that was more reflective of its time. Just as many cities either already had or were about to do, Cleveland opened a con and steel ballpark for its American League franchise. Then known as the Cleveland Naps for the 1910 season. In 1931, Cleveland opened Cleveland Municipal Stadium, a sprawling multi-purpose venue that could accommodate baseball. And for the next several years, the Cleveland Indians split time between the facilities. The Cleveland Buckeyes, of the Negro American League played there in 1943 through 1948 
and then again in 1950. Much of League Park was torn down in 1951, but a few structures would remain standing over the years, including a ticket house and a grandstand wall running along East 66th Street. Today, those remains anchor a new era of the League Park site, where the history of baseball has been chronicled through a significant project. Hamtramck Stadium in Hamtramck, Michigan. In the midst of a restoration effort, Hamtramck Stadium originally opened in 1930 and was home to a variety of Negro League teams, including the Detroit Stars and Detroit Wolves. Funding for the ballpark's renovation has come from a variety of sources, as the city of Hamtramck has been working with Smith Group JJR on a development plan for Hamtramck Stadium. Built by businessman John Rosink in 1930 as the home of the Stars, the ballpark still exists but isn't used for baseball. The original grandstand, enhanced in 1940 with WPA money, has been shut off, but the playing field is still used by the local community. However, the flagpole and pitcher's mound are still there. It's been a long slog to raise the funds needed for a proper restoration, but work could begin this summer. Hindcliffe Stadium, Patterson, New Jersey. Hindcliffe Stadium opened in 1932 and hosted the New York Black Yankees and New York Cubans along the way. But it closed in 1997 and has since fallen into a state of decline. A renovation effort gathered momentum over much of last year as local officials and developers moved forward with plans to bring the historic ballpark back into working condition for amateur sports as part of a large $76 million, $76 million development project that will include a 270-space parking garage, 65-unit senior citizen apartment building that includes a child care center and a restaurant. The restoration plan does not call for its use as a ballpark, however. J.P. Small Memorial Stadium, Jacksonville, Florida. The former Durkee Field hosted the Negro American League's Jacksonville Red Caps in two different stands, 1938 and 1941-42. Located in the Durkeeville area of Jacksonville, Durkee Field also hosted minor league baseball and spring training games for both MILB and MLB teams. It had a mixed track record to be sure. This is where Jacksonville officials refused to let black and white players take the field at the same time, causing the Montreal Royals to cancel a 1946 game where Jackie Robinson was set to play. Later, however, the ballpark became one of the first integrated ballparks in minor league baseball's South Atlantic League, a move led by Sam Wolfson when he owned the Jacksonville Braves and the likes of Henry Aaron, 
and Felix Ventilia played there. The current J.P. Small Memorial Stadium sports the same steel and brick grandstand as when the Red Caps were a tenant there. Were a tenant. There are also historical markers and a museum at the sites. Cooper Stadium in Columbus, Ohio. We're not talking about a rich and long history of Negro Leagues play at Cooper Stadium, but it did serve as the home of the Columbus Bluebirds of the Negro, League, Negro National League in the first half of 1933. The team did not do well on the field or at the gate despite the presence of Ted Double Duty Radcliffe on the roster and eventually ended up in Cleveland. Cooper Stadium, better known as the home to minor league baseball in Columbus for decades, has been partially demolished and likely to be totally demolished as the site is tentatively developed for new development. And there you have a little history on some old ballparks that's either still standing or will be in the process of being demolished. Hopefully you enjoyed this podcast segment as I'll take you back into some history. Tomorrow we will probably catch you up to speed on what's currently going on in both Major League Baseball, NFL, and NBA. So thanks for tuning into this podcast. Like this broadcast, like this podcast, share it. Have a blessed evening.